Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. The Bible is full of exhortation to good works, but who is the Bible exhorting to do the good works? People who are saved. You see, according to Scripture, works are the fruit. They are the result of my salvation. They're not the basis for my salvation. I don't work my way into salvation. When I get saved, then I have works that proceed from that salvation. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Ephesians. Join us as Pastor Brian concludes his teaching on Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, in a message titled, Saved by Grace. Now, here's Pastor Brian. If God desires that all men be saved, which we know to be the case from the plain statements of Scripture, those are scriptural references I just made there, why then would he withhold the gift of faith from some? Now, to me, this is an illogical position. To me, this, this contradicts the, the clear message of the Scripture. It's not, by grace, you have been saved through faith, and the faith is not of yourself. It is the gift of God. I think clearly it's the salvation is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. I think that we can build a case that all men have been given the ability to believe and their eternal destinies depend upon the exercising of that ability. That's the the message of scripture. Years ago, I was debating with a a friend who happened to hold the Calvinistic view. And I said to him, uh, God is, he's given everybody the ability to believe. And he said, give me a scripture for that. I said, give you a scripture. I'll give you the whole Bible. The Bible teaches that. I can't find one verse that says God has given everybody the ability to believe. But certainly that is what is implied in the biblical text as you read it from Genesis to Revelation. All through the Bible, God is calling people to faith. He's calling people to believe in him. And he's promising to bless those who do. And he's gonna ultimately judge those who don't. And so implied in the scripture from from beginning to end is this, to me, clear idea that what God has granted to humanity, even though we lost certain things in the fall, we did not lose the ability to believe. Or if we did lose it at that point, he then somehow gave it back. Okay, you want to call it a gift? He gave it back, but he gave it to everybody. You see, in the Reformed, the Calvinistic position, when you start getting down to this gift, Uh, faith being the gift, then you also get down to, well, God doesn't give that gift to everybody. He doesn't give the gift of saving faith to everybody. Well, why not? If God wants everybody to be saved and he's the one who's gonna determine that, why why doesn't he give it to everyone? So it, it creates difficulties. It creates confusion, I think. Let me give you just a couple of quick scriptural examples where I think it's obviously implied here clearly that everybody can believe. Paul said in Acts chapter, recorded in Acts chapter 17, he said to the philosophers on Mars Hill, he said, God commands all men everywhere to repent. So God commands everybody to do something. If they can't do it, unless he gives them the faith, then 
again, how could he hold them accountable? The, the counter argument from the reform person would be, well, God commands us to do a lot of things we can't, can't do. He commands us to keep the law, but we can't keep the law. So you, you get into all this theological double talk, but to me, this is a pretty clear st- statement. The implication is everybody is able to repent, which is the same idea of everybody is able to believe. In Acts chapter 11, verse 18, the Jews were stunned. The early Jewish Christians were stunned when the Gentiles began to get saved. They thought that this whole salvation through the Messiah was just really a Jewish thing. And when Peter went to the house of Cornelius and Cornelius got saved and the Gentiles began to get saved, the Jews responded and said, God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. So again, implied in that is that all of the Gentiles can be saved, just like they had previously thought only the Jews could be saved. Now they're realizing, no, the salvation is a universal offer. Now, some would persist that it has to be faith that's being referred to as the gift here. They would say that a person... (laughs) Uh, who is dead cannot exercise faith. And they go back to the first verse of the second chapter here and say, see, we're dead in trespasses and sins. What can a dead man do? Well, if we think of it in the strictest terms of dead people, they don't do anything. And that's their point. They say, ha ha, that's right. That's it. A dead man can't do anything. A dead man can't do anything until he's first, the dead man has to be made alive before he even can have faith or make a decision. And this is where you get into their theological view that is known as regeneration before faith. So you're, you're, you're made spiritually alive and then you believe later. God gives you the gift of faith. But again, this creates all kinds of problems because What we're talking about there and being made alive, we're talking about the doctrine of regeneration. In the Bible, regeneration and salvation are are synonymous. If you're regenerated, you're saved. So is it possible to be saved before you have any faith? Is it possible to be saved without believing? Paul seems to say here in the text that this is how you do get saved. You have to believe. So the argument that would say that it has to be This has to be referring to faith because a dead man can't do anything. A dead man certainly cannot have faith. But the problem here, as I see it, is that they're taking Paul's metaphor further than he intended. When Paul said we're dead in our trespasses and sins, he didn't mean that like dead men, we have no capacity to hear or to know or to at all understand certain things about God, but that we could not do anything to save ourselves. In regard to saving ourselves, yes, we are like dead men. Dead men can't do anything, so we can't save ourselves. But the idea in their mind is that being dead means you cannot have any real true concept of God. You cannot hear God. You cannot have any kind of experience or interaction with God. You have to, first of all, be brought to life. You have to be regenerated, which means you have to be saved before you believe. It's, it's a complicated theological system that I think is being imposed on the scripture rather than drawn out of the scripture. 
Think about where trespasses and sins began. Who did they begin with? They began with Adam, right? Adam and Eve, they, they trespassed. God said, on the day that you eat of this fruit, you shall die. So they were the ones, they died. They were then dead in their trespasses and sin. What happens after that? God shows up and he talks with them and he has communion with them. He has, he's still going on. He, of course, he pronounces a judgment upon them, but he also provides covering for them at that point because of their nakedness. And he gives them certain promises and then he does send them out of the garden. But my point is this, they are dead in their trespasses and sins, but they're still having uh, some kind of a connection with God. So what that tells me is that when Paul said you're dead in your trespasses and sins, it doesn't mean that you couldn't believe. God's left that within the human constitution despite of our, our fall into sin. He, he still allowed us that ability to have faith, believe. I think, again, that's implied all throughout scripture. One other argument that is often put forth, some say that if we say faith is not God's gift in the context here, if I say by grace you have been saved through faith and the faith is not of yourself, if we don't say that, then they say, well, then you're turning faith into a work. That's what they accuse us of. If faith is something they say that you're able to bring to the table, then you're saying that you contributed to your own salvation. Does anybody here today that has received Christ and been saved by him, does anyone in this room think that you saved yourself? I don't think I saved myself. I'm absolutely certain I didn't save myself. Now, I did put faith in Christ, but I don't go around I, you know, when I'm in a crowd of unbelievers, I don't look at them and go, oh, those poor suckers, you know, they didn't have any faith like me. I have, I have lots of faith. That's why I'm saved and they're not. No, we don't do that. We don't think that those thoughts never cross our mind. When I think of being saved, I know I'm saved entirely by Christ. All I've done is I've just believed what he did. That's all I've done. That's not a work. Now, they want to turn it into a work because it helps promote their view but you can't do that because in the Bible, you never have these two things confused. They're always distinct. Faith is one thing and works are a different thing. Faith is not works and works are not faith. Paul goes, he goes to lengths to make this clear, in, especially in Romans. So no, we're, we're not turning faith into a work. Faith is a different thing. God says it's a different thing. And God says that apart from it, nobody's gonna be saved. You have to have faith. You have to exercise faith. God has given all people the ability to do that very thing, to exercise faith. Now, once again, just in finalizing some of the points here, you see with the reform position, and let me be clear, the Calvinistic position, uh, the, like I said, this is an in-house argument. This is a family dispute. People who believe the, the other view, of course they're Christians, just like we're Christians. This is, this is not a, a salvation issue at all. But it is an issue that I think needs to be addressed occasionally, especially when we come across it in a text. 
uh, because those who hold the, the reform position, they, they quite often are very forceful and they're very much insisting that this is the right view. And if you don't hold this view, then you are, have some uh, defect in your doctrinal understanding. And uh, I'm sorry, I just disagree with that. I think the defect is in their doctrinal understanding. And I think it's due to the fact that they are reading something into the Bible that comes from their theological system rather than letting the Bible shape their theological system. I wanna have a theological system that is consistent with the Bible. If my theological system is in, in contradiction to the scriptures, I need to adjust my theological system. And there are certain places where that particular view, the reform view, is definitely in conflict with the plain statements of scripture. Now they've got all kinds of fanciful, philosophical type of ways of getting around it. But nevertheless, the fact of the matter is there are certain irreconcilable things. The scripture says one thing, like I've already pointed out, God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God is not willing that any should perish, but the theological system of Calvinism will tell you that, oh yes, God is willing that certain people should perish. In extreme versions of Calvinism, God, uh, they will say, God created certain people to perish for the very purpose of destroying them. God created them. And that to me is, that's hard stuff that I cannot swallow. And some people in their, in their zeal for their theological position will go so far as to even deny that God loves the whole world. I heard a well-known theologian from the reform position being interviewed a while back. And, and in many ways, I like this person. I like uh, much of what he writes. I read a lot of what he writes. But when it comes to the issue of salvation, I completely disagree with him on it or the technicalities of salvation. But he was asked in an interview, um, does God love every human being? And he evaded the question. He could not answer it. And I know why he didn't answer it because he didn't want to publicly say what he really believes. No, God does not love everybody. That's the hard Calvinistic position. God does not love everybody. When we read in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, what the hard Calvinistic position is, God so loved the world of the elect and everybody else he didn't love. Jesus didn't die for everybody else. He just died for the elect. So all, the, all these things are connected to one another. But this, the, point, the reason that I'm belaboring this point this morning is because these two things, dead in trespasses and sins, and um, the idea that faith is the gift, these are some of the strongest arguments that they put forth for that position. So we disagree. We disagree. We acknowledge that, again, it's a family dispute. We're all members of the same family. And obviously, God's not all that bothered by our different theological positions because he has seen fit in history to bless people who held to both of the different views. Some of the greatest gospel preachers in all of history have been guys who hold, held to a Calvinistic perspective, but there are plenty of great gospel preachers that disagreed with that perspective that, have also been mightily blessed. So we get all uptight about it and want to fight and argue over it and those kinds of things. And I think God's kind of like, who cares? Let's just get on with getting the gospel out. Let's just get on with the real business of getting people saved. That's the important thing. So 
not of works. That's what it brings us to. Faith is not a work. It's clear that salvation is not of works. And Paul gives us a reason here, lest anyone should boast. But that's not the only reason why salvation is not of works. That's one reason. But if we look at the bigger picture again of what the scripture tells us, we know a couple of other reasons why salvation is not of works. Um, Salvation is not of works because all have sinned. See, in order for salvation to be of works, to be saved by works, you'd have to have a perfect record. So salvation can't possibly be of works because none of us, none of us have a perfect record. So nobody could be saved by works because I would have to have a consistently perfect record. I would have to have never have sinned, ever. Now, Here's another problem. Even if I never sinned, which of course is impossible, but let's just hypothetically say, even if I never sinned, even our good works are tainted by sin because we are sinners by nature. So the scripture tells us that all of our righteousness is as a filthy rag in God's presence. So you see, it can't be of works because none of our works are good enough. It can't be of works because we've already fallen short of the glory of God. But then here, Paul tells us it can't be of works lest anyone should boast. Salvation by works would inevitably lead to pride, arrogance, and boasting, which in turn would ruin the pure atmosphere of God's kingdom and take the attention off the only one who is worthy of praise. Could you imagine if when we got to heaven, we had to sit around for ages and ages and ages and listen to people brag about how holy they were here on earth, how much better they were than other people. That would be hell. That wouldn't be heaven. I mean, who likes to sit around and listen to anybody brag? It's not fun. It's annoying, isn't it? But that's where it goes. If I think that I'm saved by something I do, then it's, it's gonna lead to boasting. We can't boast. What do we boast in? The only thing that anybody in heaven will boast about will be about the Lord himself. Maybe you are familiar with this passage. God speaking to Jeremiah, he said, Tell the mighty man not to boast in his might. Tell the wise man not to boast in his wisdom. Tell the rich man not to boast in his riches. If somebody wants to boast, tell them this is what they can boast in. They can boast in the fact that they know me. And that's it. We boast in the Lord. When we get to heaven, we're gonna be boasting all right, but it's gonna be about the grace of God and Jesus who brought us that grace. It's gonna be about the love that sought me, the blood that bought me, the grace that brought me to the fold of God. That's what we're gonna be boasting about. Now, the question then comes up, what about works? Not of works, lest anyone should boast. So does that mean that as Christians, we are not responsible to do good works? No, it doesn't mean that at all. And there certainly has been confusion over this in uh, the minds of people. Some people think that when we say we're saved by grace, 
not by works, that what we mean by that is we never do anything righteous or good or any of that. We never do any of that. We just believed in Jesus and go our merry way and live our sinful lives and die and go to heaven. That's not what we believe. That's not what we think. Here's what we believe. Here's what the Bible teaches. Yes, there are good works, but they are the fruit of salvation, not the cause of salvation. This is where the confusion lies. The Bible is full of exhortation to good works, but who is the Bible exhorting to do the good works? People who are saved. You see, according to scripture, works are the fruit. They are the result of my salvation. They're not the basis for my salvation. I don't, I don't work my way into salvation. When I get saved, then I have works that proceed from that salvation. That's the biblical picture. And so Paul goes on to say in the 10th verse, and we'll take the 10th verse alone next time, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So salvation, we work not for our salvation, we work from our salvation. That's an easy way to understand it. I don't work to be saved. I get saved by grace through faith, but then I work from that salvation, that new life of Christ that's planted in my soul now brings forth good works, works of righteousness. They come forth as a result of our salvation. They do not bring us to salvation. By grace alone, through faith alone, that's how we're saved. By grace alone, through faith alone, we put our trust in Christ and God saves us through his amazing grace, through his incomprehensible grace in many ways. Peter, at the end of his epistle, he left the saints with these words. He said, grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, the reality is when we grow in the knowledge of Jesus, we grow in his grace because he is the embodiment of grace. So as you continue to grow in him, you will continue to grow in grace, in your understanding of grace, in your experience of grace, and of course, in your appreciation of grace. For by grace, you have been saved through faith that salvation that we've been given is God's gift to us and we boast in him. And now let's join Pastor Brian in the studio as he shares about this month's resource on Back to Basics. There are certain Christian books that we would refer to today as classics, books that have just stood the test of time and generation after generation of Christians have benefited from them. There is a book that is recently published called Gentle and Lowly, written by Dane Ortland. And, you know, many people are already saying that this is a Christian classic. Now, Gentle and Lowly is 
taken from the passage in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus says of himself that he is gentle and lowly in heart. And so this book is looking at Jesus through that lens, and we're going to find out that Jesus is much more gracious, much more patient, much more loving than we ever imagined him to be. So this is a fantastic book, and I highly recommend it, especially for anyone who has a tendency to feel like they failed God, they've let him down, or you're not sure about God's love for you. This book is going to, I think, forever give you the right perspective on the heart of Jesus for his children. So check it out, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by Dane Ortland. Again, this month's resource is a book titled Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by Dane Ortland. You can order the book Gentle and Lowly by going to our website, backtobasicsradio.com. Scroll down until you see the photo of it and then click on the donate button. When you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. It's our way of saying thank you for your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Ephesians. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.